Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. On this episode of Beyond the Bump, we chat to lactation consultant Amberly Harris, and she answers all your questions you sent in about breastfeeding your little one. Enjoy. Hello, Amberly. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Would you like to give our listeners a bit of an introduction? Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, my name's Amberly. I work here in Melbourne in private practice. I specialise in breastfeeding support. So I've been a midwife for 11 years now, four of those in private practice. And yeah, really love, absolutely love what I do. Amazing. I'm sure you've helped countless women because breastfeeding and feeding little bubbers in general is such a huge topic. And we have been inundated with questions that Um, people want to know. So we're going to try and get through as many as possible. We're going to keep it general. If people have really specific concerns, we do recommend they speak to someone, you know, on an individual basis, but we'll try and cover as much as we can. Sounds good. The first question that we have, what are your top three tips or some advice for a first time mama aiming to breastfeed? Okay. My top three. Okay. Um, (laughs) So, <laughs> I usually do my top five, so I'm going to squeeze it down to three. No, you can do um, five if you want. Okay, perfect. All right. So, yeah, five. So the first one would be, if you can, allow your baby to choose its birthday. It, it, a baby that's chosen its birthday's term and more likely to be ready to adapt from womb to world, um, and that's going to really positively shape the breastfeeding relationship. Not always possible. I totally understand that sometimes mothers need to be induced or have an elective cesarean, but... Ideally, there's great benefits in choosing their own birthday. The second one sort of continues on from there is about if you can aim for a normal physiological labor that is free of unnecessary medical interventions because all of these will impact breastfeeding. Uh, Number three is learn about the breast crawl. It's a really important sequence that babies do at their very first breastfeed. And so if possible, it's an amazing thing to allow your baby the chance to do that process organically. So, um, yeah, so good to learn about it before you have your baby so you know what it looks like and you know how it's all going to work and how long it's going to take and all of that. And just quickly Um, on that, is the breast crawl truly, is that why our nipples go so dark? It's part of it for sure, yeah. It's part of it so our babies can see, definitely. Yep, it helps with all of that, all works in synergy. So (laughs) when you you give birth, does the doctor just put them like near your belly button and then they just start making their way up to the nipple yeah so yeah either whoever delivers your baby the doctor the midwife maybe mums deliver their own baby and lift them up onto the chest and so your baby just sort of finds itself in kind of the middle of your boobs or on your tummy and they literally crawl they leverage on their elbows and they bring their knees up to their chest and they make themselves 
their way from the stern and they kind of launch themselves to the side and then they work away at trying to self-attach. So they sort of salivate and chew on their hands and they bob their head around and then eventually they see the nipple exactly as you said. They Incredible. use their senses, but they also use their sense of smell in a big way also um, to find the nipple and areola because it's very glandular and it secretes a substance that babies can smell. So it's not the milk mostly. A lot of people think, oh, it's the colostrum or the milk. It's actually the nipple and areola and that glandular tissue. Um, And then, yeah, they self-attach. So it's an amazing thing if you can let your baby do it on their own. Sometimes they can't and they need help, but it's it sort of puts an imprint in a baby's mind as to how they're supposed to breastfeed going forward. So if you can let your baby use its instincts and do its own thing, it's going to mean that your baby's going to attach properly, it's going to be less likely to be nipple feeding, less likely to damage your nipple, more likely to get on properly with subsequent breastfeeds. It's so remarkable to watch. And sometimes I do find it's false advertising because they come out and they just you're like, oh, they know exactly what they're doing and my boobs know exactly what they're doing and sometimes it doesn't go quite as straightforward as that first, like, crawling feed. Absolutely, and that's why it's always about talking about the the what's normal, that it will take a good hour and if it's been an hour and your baby hasn't got on properly or, you know, you're wanting to speed up the process for whatever reason, then maybe that might be the right time to help your baby out and get some support from the midwife or if you can do it yourself, shape your breast a little bit and help your baby get on. Yeah. Number four is um, is if you can avoid dummy, dummies, bottles and formula because these things will all negatively impact your breastfeeding relationship in different ways. Um, and number five is seek support, you know, recruit someone that you connect with and trust, um, ideally before you've had your baby so that if things pop up, you've got some, somewhere to go. Maybe you've already booked them so that they're going to be available when you first have your baby. And, um, yeah, when things pop up, you know where to go. Awesome. And number five? No, that was number five. Oh, that was number five. Can you count to five? No, I can't. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. So going on to prenatal, would you be able to tell us about prenatal expressing? Do you recommend it and how often? I do definitely recommend it. Yeah. Yep. So um, antenatal expressing is best done from 37 weeks onwards because that's when a mother is term. And the reason being is because even though it's very unlikely, there is a slim possibility that it could trigger premature labor. Your term from 37 weeks onwards. And so, you know, that's why if it it happened to do that, your baby is more likely to be ready for that transition into the world. But nonetheless, you should always get clearance from your medical provider before you start hand expressing but I do recommend it for all mothers from 37 weeks it does amazing things it it firstly it helps you get familiar with your body so um, that's a great thing because you can actually sort of practice what it feels like and you can see your body's making colostrum which is a huge confidence boost when you go into a breastfeeding relationship Um, and then you don't need to rely on anyone to do it for you you can do it for yourself if your baby's unsettled and the midwives are really busy that's going to be a great thing to be able to go well I don't need any help I know how to do this and if you happen to express volume and be able to take some into the hospital or you know if you're having a baby at home have it in your freezer then if your baby does need something extra you've got it you don't have to think oh what if I have to use formula like you know you've already got it so there's so many benefits to doing it. So what do you think is is it best to express into a syringe and then freeze the syringe if you are getting volume yeah absolutely correct so yeah so I have a video series where I teach all of this um and so 
Yeah, so it would be in one, three or five mil syringes that you can get from the pharmacy and you catch it in the syringe and then you um, store it in the freezer until you have your baby. And then when you're taking it into hospital, does it like will it thaw out? What do you do with it then? Yeah, so put it in um, like a freezer bag with yep. some freezer packs so that you can keep it as cold as possible and yep. just pop it straight in the freezer when you get to the hospital. Yeah, yep. great. And should yep. should mothers be concerned if they don't feel like they get much colostrum antenatally? Not at all. So to start off with, I have met many, like I have all my clients hand expressing from 37 weeks and some of them might write to me, you know, a week in and say, I still can't get anything and I always prepare them in advance that that's likely to happen there's nothing wrong with your body hand expressing is a skill and it takes practice yeah. so it's usually not that women don't have any colostrum it's quite often that they're just still figuring out how to actually mm. make it work um so yeah no you might not get anything or you might just get a drop or two or you might be lucky and have a couple of meals the first time you express there's no right or wrong amount it's just thinking of hand expressing is also about stimulation it's about sending signals to the milk making cells in the breast to say let's get this moving so we can make more so it's yeah really important to know don't be discouraged if you don't get anything it's not just about what you collect it's thinking of it that if I do this you know once a day or even up to three times a day from 37 weeks it's also playing a part in stimulation. I remember with my first child, I tried to do that and, and get it out of my nipple. And I literally just squeezed like the actual, the tiny little nipple end. And I said to my friend who's got two kids at the time, oh, you know, it's not working. It's not working. She's like, oh, give it to me. So she actually grabbed my boob. And, you know, there is a certain method to this, pulling it down and squeezing it out. And all of a sudden, uh, a few drops came out. It was incredible. And you go, oh, my nipple cripple was not adequate. Yeah, I did the wrong nipple cripple. So many things to learn. Your girlfriend is awesome because that's the thing. We can teach each other so much as women. We can empower each other. There's so much to learn and that we can share. And that's so cool that you you girls were close enough that you could do that for each other because if, yeah. if there was more of that in the world, I think there'd be far less breastfeeding issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. I think even though breastfeeding is becoming more public, it is still quite covered and you never really until you have a baby get close enough close enough up to like a baby's mouth going onto a nipple to really see Mm. like how it's done. Sure, you just see, you know, the head from however far away, but you don't actually see the mechanics of what needs to happen. So So much mechanics too. But if you can be close enough that they don't mind you getting your nose down to their (laughs) nipple and seeing what's going on, you can learn so much. I so agree. And I say to mothers all the time, once you sort of like you've got, you first, first had your baby, if there's women in your family or your social circle, let them see how you breastfeed. Like teach them from the very early days, like this is how I'm figuring it out. So I wait for the big wide open mouth. And, yeah, exactly as you said, like bring them in mm. close and because, yeah, there's so much that we could learn. And most of the time those of us that are when we have our first baby and we go to do our first breastfeed, that's probably the first time we've seen breastfeeding up close like that is yeah. with our own baby. So if you think of the women, you know, when when it's passed, that, that um, skill is passed down through the generations and women have seen um, other women in their family, like young girls grow up with seeing breastfeeding women all around. Breastfeeding is a learned skill and if we can't see other people, that's going to impact that. So, yeah, it's such a good thing as women to teach each other. 
And even by the six-week mark, I feel like it's too late because you're generally down to like one arm and they're just latching themselves on. It's that real double arm, open mouth, shove on that you need to kind of learn, I think. There's a lot of methods or I guess examples and stories on how we can prepare our nipples for breastfeeding before bub comes. Can you tell us the right ones that would work? Because the toothbrush brushing on the nipple has, I've been told. It's been debunked. Yeah, it isn't a good thing. <laughs> and I'm glad that's been debunked. Yeah, so you you don't have to do anything to your nipples. Your nipples are designed to do this. And so you might be a mother that doesn't get any nipple damage or you might be a mother that does. It depends on skin type, on the amount of collagen and elastin and the melanin. And so while this hasn't been studied, in my experience, mothers who have darker skin and who go tan in the sun they um, don't get much nipple damage and then mothers that are really fair skin or burn very easily mothers who have red hair or freckles they are more likely to get nipple damage now that as I said it's not been studied that this is just in my experience I find that and so you, you won't know what is going to happen for you. It'll just be about, and, and don't, for those mothers that are fair-skinned, don't listen to that and think, oh, I'm going to get yeah. the worst nipple damage. You might not. But um, I think it's more about saying that you're, we don't know how your nipples will go, but what we do know is that they, they go through a period of adjustment and they're designed to do this. So there isn't anything that you need to do to toughen them or make them more resilient. The best thing to do is just practice your breastfeeding with your baby and learn about positioning and attachment. Well, I feel like with each child of mine, they were all completely different. Like you would have thought with the third child, I would be a pro at breastfeeding, but she was one of my worst in terms of latching. And and we will talk about latching, but the baby obviously has something to do with connecting and breastfeeding and cracked nipples. Exactly. You're so right. It's, a, it's about our anatomy as mothers, but it's also about our baby's mouth and their palate and their tongue. And yeah, there's so many parts to it that you're so right. Every breastfeeding journey is different and that's why you don't need to do anything crazy like in back in the old days people used to recommend putting you know like a hessian sack um that you oh, cut Jesus. a little the hessian sack and put that in your bra <laughs> and walk around with that for the final weeks of pregnancy so oh, similar yes. to the tooth that's um thankfully not recommended anymore so that's we we don't go get sandpaper from bunnings and just chuck that in our bra <laughs> before we give birth right okay no, good to know that is not Yeah, in case the end of pregnancy is not uncomfortable enough, let's just like just (laughs) rub the crap and chafe our nipples up. But it's funny that you say that about the darker nipples because, as I said, I have very dark nipples. Very dark. And they're an inconvenience because I don't like to wear a bra, but you can see them through anything. So from now on I'm going to say, you know what, it's a good thing. It may have helped that I've never had issues with cracked nipples and nipple damage, so I'll embrace my um, attention-seeking dark nipples. (laughs) Is there anything that you can do when you're pregnant to help with the milk supply? No. Like, again, milk production is based on two different things. The first one is uh, the delivery of the placenta. So when the placenta is born, obviously the end of labour, we birth our baby and then we have this amazing orchestration of hormones that are responsible for the birth of the placenta and as the placenta comes out then the it's all the pituitary gland is the gland at the base of our skull and that sends the the right hormones the prolactin is the one that's responsible for milk production and so that just all kind of happens 
of course that's impacted if you have a cesarean because even though your placenta is still delivered it's not from that orchestration of hormones it's just literally scooped out of the uterine cavity so that's why mothers who have cesareans um, generally have milk production come in a few days later than a mother who has a it still comes in but there there can be a bit of a delay um and then the other reason for milk production is is this our baby sucking at the breast demand equals supply so our babies are sending those signals to say let's let's take this milk or this colostrum away and let's make more so those things happen anyway after the birth there's nothing in pregnancy that you would need to do to facilitate that um it's probably more just going back to just good health you know having um being focused on your nutrition and staying well hydrated and Mm. And those things are all going to help you positively bring in your milk supply. And you've kind of touched on this, but we're going to move on to those newborn days. So if demand equals supply, in those first few weeks, is it best to just let our baby feed for as long as they want to feed, feed as often as they want to feed? Sure, yeah, feed on demand. So roughly a newborn baby is going to feed 8 to 12 times in 24 hours, which is sort of every 2 to 3 hours. You may get lucky and get a 4-hour stretch, but that would be the longest our babies will go. So, you, yeah, feeding on demand is definitely... Definitely the recommendation. The only reason you would have a bit of a feeding plan in the early days is if your baby, you know, had jaundice or had lost more weight than normal, um, was having trouble gaining weight, then you might feed them like every three hours and have a structured plan. Um, Or if they're a sleepy baby and they don't wait for their own feeds, but generally you follow your baby's lead because even though we have the boobs, our babies are the drivers of our supply. So we really want to hand that role over to them and say, you tell me how much milk I need to make for you to grow and thrive. Which is a nice thing to know because it takes pressure off you having to think, oh, you know, when should I be feeding my baby? You just, you listen and wait for the cues and then you just, you know, open up the milk bar. Exactly. Or just keep (laughs) it open. Or just keep it open. With the sleepy babies, if you're finding your baby is sleeping longer than four hours, do you generally say that you should wake them? Yes, for sure. Yeah, for a newborn baby yeah. anyway. Yeah, they shouldn't be sleeping longer than four hours and going longer than four hours without a feed. And that's because, you know, they need to grow and they need to make wee and, and all of that. But we also need to stimulate our boobs. We, we have the most impact on supply in the first six weeks. That's the right. the time takes to establish milk production, but it's also the most influential on those milk-making cells in our breast. So it's not to say that if you don't establish a good supply in the first six weeks, weeks you can't build your supply up you still can but it's much more work so if you think the first six weeks this is my time to to really stimulate my boobs and bring in an abundant milk supply then I'm going to really set my breastfeeding up for long-term success so do you think if you're someone who's keen on implementing a routine you should wait until you're out of that six week mark so that you're more working on supply demand absolutely yeah for breastfeeding a routine in that way about being sort of regimented with when you feed your baby, it's not going to help you set up your milk supply, but it's also going to impact you maintaining your milk supply. Um, So, yeah, I would definitely say you, you can bring in some sort of structure, even though in saying that it's it's tricky to do with breastfed babies. It's, it's, it's different with formula feeding. They will sleep for more predictable periods of time. Um, and if, that's just because if you think about breastfeeding, it's not just about nutrition. Babies breastfeed for a lot of reasons outside of hunger. You know, they're mm. hot, they're cold, they're 
all the time. They're overstimulated. They're trying to push out their poo. Like babies want to go to the breast for comfort. It's not always about food. So that's why, you know, mothering through breastfeeding is a very different amazing experience but it does make routine if you're a mother and I work with many mothers that are like well I need to have some sort of structure or I'm going to go crazy so it's like that's okay we can do that but I would definitely say exactly what you said don't worry about it for the first six weeks Um, and even more so probably think about the fourth trimester the first 12 weeks is that time to really respond to your baby you can't spoil them you can't you know smother them with too much love just follow their lead and be there for them and create that bond and connection and what are some factors that can lead to a low milk supply Mm -hmm. so scheduled feeds is the first thing probably that um yeah definitely if you're not yeah following your baby's lead then you're not going to make the right amount of milk for them the other things is like introduction of, of formula mainly just because of the gastric emptying time between formula and breast milk so with breast milk it's about 90 minutes it takes for our babies to break down breast milk in the gut with formula it's if it's based off cow's milk which most of the formulas on the market are it's three times longer than that so it's about four and a half hours it takes for a baby to break down formula so if a baby's had some formula with their feed maybe they've breastfed but they've also been topped up with formula by the time the next breastfeed comes around they're not going to be very motivated to feed because they're probably not going to be very hungry Um, and so then you try and feed them but they're kind of sleepy and so then we think oh okay we haven't fed that well so then I'm going to use some some more formula and so then sometimes that can sort of start a bit of passion with more formula that you keep giving the more it's going to negative impact your milk supply and so it's hard because some you know formula might be introduced as a way to help a baby gain weight or because a mother has a low supply but what it's also going to do is further um, drop their supply so with any of those things it's about working with someone when you do it I've got many mothers that as you recommend donor milk um, if it's the right fit but if it's not they might say well I'd rather use formula so then all I do is I'm just really specific about the way we use the formula um, and help them phase it out as soon as we can. So with formula because you know obviously there's a lot of women that do formula feed or they mix feed if if they were to formula feed when would be the right age? Like would it be after six weeks where you've really got your milk supply in a routine where it's not going to affect handing a bottle every now and then? Or would you say that, you know, not at all? Or what would your recommendation be? So um, it doesn't matter what time in your breastfeeding journey you introduce formula. It will negatively impact your milk supply if you're wanting to continue your breastfeeding. So we know that mothers that mix feed, statistically, they don't go on and breastfeed for as long as a mother who is exclusively breastfeeding. And it's just because they do end up having a drop in their supply. Now, you know, that might not be a problem. Some mothers are like, well, I'm okay with that. I still want to, you know, be able to be apart from my baby and I want, you know, my husband to do a, a, I don't know, a bottle feed or I want to be able to go out on the weekend and I'm okay with that. I think what my agenda always is is just having women understand how it all works and that if, if you're totally fine with that, then great. I recommend the World Health Organization guidelines, which is why I have a 662 movement, which means that my content and the work I do helps mothers learn how to breastfeed over the first six weeks 
so they can go on and exclusively breastfeed for the first six months and continue breastfeeding until their child turns two or beyond. So the 662 is um, is all based around the World Health Organization guidelines. So in order to achieve that, it is going to be harder to do if you're mixed feeding or, you know, the other thing just to consider is just the role that, that formula can play. It's Babies are more likely to have challenges with their digestion. They get more constipated. They might have more wind. So it sort of creates more more things to contend with. But, yeah. you know, again, if I'm okay with that, yeah. um, I think the important is that you've got all the information. I guess it's all about going into it, yeah, with that understanding that it may shorten your breastfeeding. I must, I, I, I want to add, though, and I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm all for formula feeding and breastfeeding. I breastfed all my children, but there were moments in my breastfeeding journey with each child that I did implement some sort of formula feeding, whether it be because I had cracked nipples and the only way was for me to rather than express because I had two children that I had to deal with, I didn't have time, then I would use a formula bottle or, you know, I wanted to go out and I I didn't want to, I guess, give myself an extra milk cycle of expressing when I didn't need to. So, you know, how it will just fill back up the next day, the more times you do that. So I I really found for me personally, the, the tiny implements of formula feeding really helpful for me as well as breastfeeding. Sure, exactly. And I think every mother has to look into that and figure out what's the better fit. I always give mothers the option if there needs to be use of formula for whatever reason. I usually talk again through the World Health Organization guidelines. Um, And so there's actually four points on their list. So number one is the best benefit, obviously, to a baby is its own mother's milk. And if that's not available, we don't have enough of that. um, Then the next option down the list is milk from informal milk sharing. So from, from someone in a mother's social circle or in their family that they would feel comfortable asking for, for milk from. And then if that's not available, then the next one down on third on the list is milk from a milk bank, breast milk. And so that's not really an option here in Australia. We don't have a lot of milk banks um, mm. and here in Melbourne anyway, where I am. Are you girls in Melbourne? I don't know where you are. We're in Byron Bay. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Okay. So in Melbourne, um, the, there is only one milk bank that's um, at a hospital here and babies have to be sick or premature and born from that hospital right. so there's really no option for milk banks here and so the reason milk banks is third on the list and further down than the milk sharing is because milk from a milk bank gets pasteurized so it does alter the natural properties to the milk because it gets heated so there's not as much of the immune protection in it it's yeah. still very beneficial and that's why it's third on the list um, and formula is fourth but yeah in comparison if you feel comfortable and you, you know a mother and you think well I know she's a fit healthy woman she's breastfeeding her own baby um, maybe if you wanted to you could ask to look at her blood screening results if you're worried about anything or ask if she takes any medication or any of that but um, that's sort of what I recommend for mothers to, to be aware of the list and why the list exists um, and if you know, I have plenty of women that go well yeah I would much rather milk share and I've got a girlfriend to ask or I have mothers that go that's just so out there to me I don't think I feel comfortable so I would rather use formula so I think it's always about looking well why does the list exist and how are these yeah. things going to all to my breastfeeding relationship and if you're fine and you understand it all um that's always what's important to me is that women have all the information yeah 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 and other than letting your baby demand feed are there any other ways that we can keep our supply up 
Um, if you're worried you have a low supply or you're just talking in general. Just in general. So no, nothing else that you would need to do just to breastfeed on demand. You know, Mm. if if your baby's feeding well, they're going to effectively drain your breast and maintain your supply. It's only if you have a low supply that maybe you need to put some other things in place. But, you know, otherwise, you know, breastfeeding works very well. We don't often need to sort of think that do we have to do all this extra stuff if we're, you know, maintaining good health ourselves, we're eating well, we're staying well hydrated and, you know, we're assessing that our baby's growing and all the ways to review supply. There's nothing like out there that we have to be doing at the same time. And how important is staying hydrated while breastfeeding? Because I know as soon as you get home and you do start the breastfeeding journey, you're like this ravenous, thirsty animal that just needs to have bedside snacks and water at all times. Do you have to have more water throughout the day than a a normal, you know, non-breastfeeding person? Yeah, generally um, water consumption for a breastfeeding mum is closer to sort of three litres of water a day to help you maintain a full supply. And quite often, as long as you like drinking water, um, I find that mothers drink that anyway without it being a very conscious effort because exactly as you said, you're literally really thirsty. Your body's telling you to keep replacing that that fluid. But I think it's important to remember too, like there's, there's women all over the world, there's women sadly in parts of the world that don't have good access to water and to good nutrition as well and they maintain fantastic amounts of milk so sometimes um we're quick to criticize if mother doesn't make enough milk they're like oh you mustn't be eating enough or you know oh your baby's unsettled oh you're probably eating something that's causing that (laughs) or I think women get blamed for everything and it's like well actually maybe it's often nothing to do with what women are eating windy babies and also you know yeah you know if mothers can maintain a supply in parts of the world where they don't really eat very much but they're actually very capable of of growing their baby well yeah I think we can also just remember breastfeeding works very well it's it's a very (laughs) intelligent system and sometimes incredible just the bejesus out of it and it's just not necessary yeah how do you know if you do have a low milk supply good question so um it wasn't (laughs) She didn't, she, she didn't ask the question. Someone else did. <laughs> There's really two versions of low supply, perceived and actual. And um, I sadly find a lot of mothers will wean off perceived low supply far too often um, and it's not an actual low supply. So perceived reasons of low supply would be like my boobs have gone soft, like in the however many, however many first few weeks of breastfeeding, my baby wants to feed all the time, I clearly don't have enough milk. Like these are things that are very normal. Maybe mothers expressed and gone, oh, well, I only got 50 meals and I heard this woman on Instagram got like 200 <laughs> meals. Um, like these are things that wreak havoc with our, you know, Absolutely. our mind. Going, yeah. oh, my gosh, what's wrong? It's quite often nothing to do. These are very normal things and not an indicator of supply. So there's four ways to assess milk supply. The first one is that our babies are weaning and pooing their output. So six to eight wet nappies in 24 hours and soft yellow stools is normal for a breastfed baby. The second one is that they are content when they come off the breast most feeds. So it's not every feed. They cluster feed. They go through periods feed frequently but when I say content you literally finish the breastfeed and your baby falls asleep Mm. or your baby 
is relaxed, like seems happy, like you've met their hunger needs. They're not crying and like seeming like they're starving and want to go back to the breast. So those two, we can uh, we can evaluate every day as mothers. And it's always about, I always want to talk about what can we do every day instead of thinking, oh, but I've got to wait to the next weigh-in because weigh-ins don't happen that often. They're also not everything because if a baby is gaining weight, but meanwhile they're not weighing and pooing and they're screaming at the breast, well, that's not very reassuring. So, um, yeah, they're the first, the two things that we can do. The third thing is that they're growing. So, um, yes, it is about weight, but it's also about length and head circumference as well. Um, and then the fourth one is reaching developmental milestones. So if you can look at all four of those things and everything's going well, great. If things maybe aren't going well in some of those areas, it's about looking into it and maybe getting help to boost your supply, always seeking professional support to review your milk production before thinking I need to go in and do something because maybe everything's working well. Do things like lactation cookies and teas mm. and stuff, do they work? Yeah, I do think they, they do. There's It's not like they've been studied necessarily, yeah. but I, I think there's very strong anecdotal evidence that they work. But the thing is they don't work for everyone. So yeah. you need to work out which works for you. So maybe you do respond from the brewer's yeast and the flax seeds in the cookies, um, or maybe you actually do better on the fenugreek, the herb um, is a better fit for you. So sometimes I, I generally will put mothers on some things, but I'll also give them a breastfeeding plan. Maybe it's bringing in some expressing as well to stimulate more supply or putting their baby to the breast more often and then we kind of review their milk production a couple of days later to see well have they responded to these things there's also a medication called domperidone that you can be prescribed that increases milk production so um, that works very well for the vast majority of mothers so it's about working out well do I need to just do something subtle like the cookies or do I actually really need help and I'm going to go on the medication for a couple of weeks awesome how do you know you have oversupply versus normal engorgement? Mm. So engorgement is normal. Like all women have an oversupply when they first have their baby. And so um, what it's about is uh, checking in with your boobs. So we need to get really well acquainted with our boobs when we start breastfeeding. Feel your boobs before, during and after a feed to be able to work out, has your baby finished? Is there milk still sitting there that maybe you need to make a conscious effort to remove? So this is all really normal. Um, and oversupply is something that if you have trouble yet yeah, emptying your breasts and maybe you get recurrent block ducts or mastitis, there might be other parts to the story that tell us that, okay, you, you haven't been able to settle down your milk production and regulate it. Um, and so maybe we need to do some things to kind of help this as well. And would that be after like, say, six weeks of just settling and getting your boobs used to feeding? Yeah, well, yeah, generally it is six weeks, but I'm always reluctant to give times because yeah. every mother's different and if it doesn't do that, so some mother's engorgement will settle down in the first two weeks and then mothers might be like, well, why did yours take six weeks? Do I not have enough milk? And so I think it's about assessing other things as well, like being able to work out, yeah, if you're not getting recurrent block ducts and mastitis and your baby's weighing and pooing and not, you know, choking on the boob and having milk squirt everywhere and all this sort of stuff, if that settles down in time, then you know you're on the right path. 
And I find that the pumping recommendations can be confusing in terms of supply because some people say, oh, pump if you've got an oversupply or you're heavily engorged and then you also hear to pump to increase your milk supply. Um, are you able to help with that? <laughs> help. So pressing in general, we recommend that you avoid expressing in the first six weeks if you can. Just focus on feeding your baby. The reasons you would express is if you have engorgement and and your boobs are so full, maybe your baby feeds from one side and doesn't want the second side and you think, I can't wait to the next feed, like my boobs killing me. So maybe you express off for comfort. So just enough to kind of take the edge off, make your boob feel comfortable that you think, okay, I can last to the next feed. Um, but you're really keeping it to a minimum is how you manage that. And then, of course, there's expressing if you have a low supply and you're trying to increase your milk production, what we're trying to do is say, that our babies breastfeed, but then we're, we're adding some extra stimulation to say, I need to make more than this. I've got milk, but I actually need to make more. And so then it's like a whole plan with expressing that you would have like key times in the day that you would get on the pump. How? So if you have oversupply, you wouldn't do a full express. It would just be for comfort. Yeah. Yeah. Just to let yeah. it out. How incredible are women and our bodies? How incredible are tits? Oh, it's just mind-blowing, just the transformation of, you know, pregnancy and then breastfeeding and how we just like, ah, oh, it's just, it blows my mind. Should yeah, babies feed from both sides? Yes. Yes, at the start, yes. So everyone has a milk-carrying capacity, so a certain amount of milk that you hold in your boobs. And we don't know at the start whether your baby can get a full feed from one boob. So what we want to do is feed your baby on one side, drain that boob, and then offer the second side. And you're I'm so sorry, that's okay. my 25-year-old in my lab are here. What's going on? I swear we shouldn't be called mums. We should be called snack slaves. Yeah, snack bitch. <laughs> Exactly. Okay. Right. Yes, we should offer, offer both breasts because mothers have a milk carrying capacity. So a certain amount of milk that we all make in each of our boobs. And at the start, we don't know what every mother's carrying capacity is. So you would offer your baby the first side, let them empty that side and then do the nappy, wake them up, offer them the second boob. They may or may not feed, but what's important is that you're offering it. You're letting them decide if they actually do need the second side or maybe they're like, I'm done, I've got everything I need from one boob. I found with both my daughters at the start it was quite difficult to wake them between. Do you have any tips for how you can wake them up enough to know you're even offering anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the nappy in the middle is like the main thing I would say. Um, you also might need to do, I, I recommend most of your breastfeeds in the first few weeks to be skin to skin. Um, you're going to be more likely to help your baby be really alert, but there are some really sleepy babies um, and I always feel really mean, but I recommend just getting a face washer that's cold and just putting it like all over their face and their head. They don't love it, obviously, but you need to just wake them up enough so that they open their mouth and go on and then once they get on their in business so things like that can be cruel but really it sounds so counterintuitive but it's so it's so right that you all you want them to do is sleep and you're just like oh now I'm torturing them to wake them up yeah is it normal for bubs to prefer one side or to produce more on one side absolutely yeah it's like you know there's always one good titty isn't there 
<laughs> there is. There's always one overachiever, <laughs> and um, and then our other side is like still doing good things, but um, not the side that our babies prefer. So maybe it's that the milk ducts are better aligned and the milk flows more quickly for a baby. Maybe the nipple is easier for them to attach to, or maybe that side makes more milk. So that's why they prefer it. But sometimes they prefer the side that doesn't make enough the same amount, like the is the lesser of the two. Um, oh, that's it's nice. Yeah, fill that one up. Yeah, that's kind. It's like giving it a pat on the back. Like you can do it. Boo. Yeah, <laughs> little saggy. Booty. I find hand dominance. Do you think that sometimes comes into yeah. play? Because I find that I have to really, even now, like Goldie's four and a half months, I find that I find it so much easier to feed on this side, and I have to consciously go, no, go on the other side. Yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely would be part of it when we if we're right or left handed. Moving on to some breastfeeding issues, um, in those early days, you know, breastfeeding can generally be painful. How do you decipher when it's your baby's not latched properly and it's painful versus this is normal, you're just getting used to breastfeeding pain? Sure. I think it's important to have someone, a professional there with you to be able to help you see visually what a correct attachment looks like. And then you can sort of pair that information with how it's feeling with the attachment. And then you'll also know when it doesn't feel right. And it's really right. It's, it's nipple feeding as opposed to breastfeeding. And then they can sort of say to you, be able to show you, okay, see, that's not your, your baby's not on properly and give you the information to sort of put together. And then in time, it just takes, takes practice to work out, is that incorrect attachment or is that that my baby's on properly, but my nipples are really sore. And so, yeah, it's not going to feel super comfortable, but I know they're on properly because I can tell the difference. It's just about, yeah, practice. But I think definitely having someone, having a midwife with you to be able to say, yeah, that's that, that looks right. Like that, this is what it should look like. There are so many little like hints, I guess, what what's that C? They say that if your baby's mouth is in the shape of a yeah, yeah you tell because I obviously <laughs> don't know. <laughs> yeah, some people refer to it as like a special K mouth. There's like yeah. the C a. K. Whatever. Um, the C. I'm just trying to think. No, of- it's K. You're trying to be okay, nice. Yeah. It's K. Go on. <laughs> Sometimes they sound the same, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Similar. Yeah, exactly. So their lips are fanned out. Their top and bottom lip is really fanned out is key. So they don't have like their lip tucked up into their mouth. Um, Sometimes babies do that on their own. Sometimes we need to put some downwards pressure on their chin and sort of move up their nose to help them fan out their lip. Um, And that, you know, all just helps them get on properly. At the start, it can really at times feel like a three-arm, three-hand say three hand job wow that's not what I mean um <laughs> you know sometimes you girl. just feel like oh this would be so much easier if I just had a third arm yes. not a third leg uh, wow that that statement went places that it wasn't meant to go. <laughs> I loved it you're very entertaining <laughs> girls to do a podcast with. that's our aim yes good on you it's awesome <laughs> Wow. Okay. Where are we? I guess it depends what the latch issue is, but any top tips if you are having latching issues other than the the C or the K mouth, any other tips? Yeah, and how to detach and reattach. Yeah, so putting a clean finger into the corner of your baby's mouth, break the suction, take them off, and then try again and wait for a big wide open mouth. Mm. Um, 
things to do, I guess it's uh, my biggest ally with nanny nipple damage is skin to skin and doing a breast crawl with the breastfeed. So I usually get mothers doing it with every feed, um, maybe not at night if they're exhausted, but all their day feeds, the more breastfeeds you do skin to skin with a breast crawl, the more likely your baby is going to get on properly every time. So um, that would be my focal point is about really focusing on really you know, tapping into your baby's instincts, uh, you know, babies have that those instinctive breast-seeking behaviours and they're going to be more likely to be able to access those if they're on our skin and they're using all of their senses to find their way to the boob. So I say to do this for anyone, but certainly if I meet someone that's got really bad nipple damage, that's always would be the first place I go to. Work on their attachment and then it's about good products. You need good products to help your nipples heal. So I have a nipple butter in my shop that's got specific herbs in it that are really important to help nipples heal. And there's a lot of products on the market, but the the reason I created this product was because none of them had the ingredients that I wanted. um, And they had things that I didn't want, um, which is mainly essential oils. Essential oils are a big no-no for a baby learning how to breastfeed because it overpowers their sense of smell Ah. and they can't actually feel an areola. So yeah, you need specific herbs that are going to really accelerate wound healing and help your nipples adjust but you also need no essential oils so if you open it and you're like "Mm, this smells delicious that's not a good thing (laughs) we might put those details in the bottom so people can find that balm because that's yeah I was looking for your balm when I was breastfeeding and I obviously (laughs) didn't know about it so thanks (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) you're just gonna have to have another kid so you can give it a go (laughs) You're hilarious. I say that on every episode. I know. Everyone's like, oh, the the Sophie joke. (laughs) And your response is always to recoil. I know. What is vasospasm? So it is a reduction in blood flow to the nipple area. So it's when there's been damage and at some point there's been nipple damage and the vessels have been damaged. And so that's what basically creates that vasospasm response, which is when the the vessels go into a spasm and then all the blood gets sent in a different direction, not to the nipples. So it's really painful. Um, and yeah, it also doesn't help when we, if we've got nipple damage on top of it, if we're not sending lots of oxygenated blood to the area, it can't heal. Mm. Um, so it creates a lot of sort of problems. So you sort of need to treat all of it at the same time. So you can get over it. I thought it was one of those things that, like, you have it. I didn't realise something led to it. I thought it was like you have vasospasm and that is what your nipples have. Mm -hmm. No, you can treat it for sure and it goes away. Um, It will either go away on its own, like, in time, but as as to when that will happen, it's hard to say. So for most mothers, they're like, well, I can't just wait for this to go away. Mm. I'm trying to recover and this is killing me. Um, So then it's about treating it with with heat to encourage the blood to flow. Also um, taking certain herbs, there's supplements that are known to increase the increased blood flow to and improve our circulation. Yeah. So I usually put mothers on like a whole plan to help it heal. And there are some prescribed medications that are beneficial if those other things don't work. So it won't necessarily recur next time you breastfeed? Not necessarily, no. no. And what are some tips for distracted babies while feeding, getting them mm-hmm. to focus? Yes. Good question as well. So um, finding a quiet room, going to a place that you know there's not that much stimulation is sort of the best you can do during the day. Choosing your feeds wise, the feed times wisely. So if you know you've got to go out, 
don't worry so much about how your breastfeeds are going to go. Your baby's probably not going to feed for very long, if, or, if at all. So do your feed at home before you go. When you first get home, focus on taking your baby to a space that they're going to be more likely to feed. But, you know, sometimes we stress as mothers when our babies reach that age. It's usually from sort of four months onwards up till six months. They've got major FOMO. So they have real issues. <laughs> stopping and just concentrating on breastfeeding so um it's about I guess not being so concerned as a mother and knowing that our baby is going to make up for this the lack of calories during the day they're probably going to do it at night so being available for the night feeds because they're going to be more sleepy and dreamy and more open to having a long feed so just think to yourself okay well the day feeds kind of all went pear-shaped and that's fine so you know tonight I'll probably get better feeds in you can make it up in the go, night. Go to bed earlier that night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what about for babies that go on nursing strikes? You know, should we be trying to force them to feed or? Yeah, so it depends on why. It's called breast refusal is another word for it. Um, it depends on why they do it. Is it that they have a cold and they can't breathe? So, of course, we can't force them to do it if they've got other <laughs> stuff going on. Often it's teething related. They've got pain in their mouth and so they kind of have issues with breastfeeding. Um, maybe it's a mum's got her period back and her milk tastes different or there's been a drop in her supply. Well, so she's pregnant. I guess Exactly, definitely will impact that as well. <laughs> so um, it's about working out, well, why did it happen in the first place? And then that helps me work out the plan on how we're going to help it. But generally, most of the time, breast refusal is temporary. Babies do come back to the breast, but we need to just give them space and um, and work out ways that we can just kind of roll with it, maintain our supply, but know that once we kind of get through that period, they'll, they'll find their way back. So if they are breast refusing, should we like if they've completely refused to feed, should we express so that our boobs know we still want to continue feeding? Yeah, exactly. You need to maintain your supply yeah. for sure. And then depending on how old your baby is, you may be trying to still give them that in a sippy cup or a bottle Yeah. Um, or they may to not have that feed and just have some solids. Like, yeah, again, it just depends yeah. on how old they are. Yeah. Nipple thrush, how do you get it? How do you know you have it? And what are your tips to prevent it? Mm-hmm. Um, so typically thrush is created when there's been a wound. So we've had nipple damage. There's been a crack that's formed and nipple thrush loves that moist wound environment. They really thrive on that area and that's where the yeast colonises and grows. So preventing it is preventing uh, nipple damage. Um, but if you can't do that, um, then it's about making sure that you are putting products on like nipple butter or think compresses and things to help your nipples heal. Um, so that's your moist wound environment. But you've also got an opportunity to air dry your nipples. So you're going to walk around with no top on and, and let your nipples be exposed to the air for big parts of the day because the yeast will hate that. And so we want to basically try and starve the yeast. And what are your thoughts on cabbage leaves? You know how a lot of people pop them in the freezer and then when you have engorgement or cracked nipples, you put a stinky little cabbage leaf in your bra and you smell amazing. Is that <laughs> is that actually helpful or is it just a prank oh, that we're tale. pulling on each other? <laughs> so your husband yeah, doesn't I, go near you. <laughs> I think it's about, I, I think it's a, a bit of an old wives' tale. Again, it hasn't been studied to say that there's properties in the cabbage that draw out inflammation or anything like that. Um, I think probably what it's more to do with is that they're a perfectly round shape. You can have them be cold yeah. and then they can fit neatly in your bra. So there's no harm in doing that. Yeah, if as long as they're clean and you haven't got like bad nipple damage that you're putting a, 
um, a cabbage there. And you're happy um, to smell yeah. like farts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, everything else is going on, like throw farts on the pile. Yeah. Really. Chuck a fart. So it's, more the cool, it's, like, it's more the cooling sensation than the, the cabbage itself, yeah. Now, lip and tongue ties can be quite controversial. How do you know if your baby has one and when should they be released? Well, you need to have it assessed from a a professional who is skilled in determining if it's a true lip or tongue tie. Um, The other thing too is it's not just kind of looking in your baby's mouth. People that are skilled in um, reviewing tongue ties um, actually will like part um, away the skin under your baby's tongue and check if there's restriction there because just a lip or tongue tie in appearance isn't a problem if it's not causing issues with your breastfeeding. So that always needs to be released. Um, I've worked with plenty of babies that have had lip and tongue ties and they breastfeed very well because mums have got good supply, their nipples are a good length and so they have no issues with their attachment. I think my husband has a tongue tie. Why he can't suck on your breast well. Oh, so glad you said that. But no, it's because it's like a tiny little string underneath that's tiny. He can't put his tongue out really mm, far. mm, Yeah, mm. I reckon he has a tongue tie. Do you know if he breastfed? I don't think he did. I know that's a thought you want to think about. Yeah, no. I don't think he did. There you go. Is it one of those things that sometimes, like as you say, because I guess it depends on the mother's nipple, like the severity doesn't dictate the severity of the latch? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's, for me, I don't actually look straight away in a baby's mouth. I wait and I see how well they breastfeed and can they get on properly. And if they can, I do check their mouth over the first few days that I work with a mother, um, but not because I don't want to label it a lot of the time because people think like lip and tongue ties are a real scapegoat for breastfeeding problems these days. And that I don't think is fair. So um, I'm always and, – and the other thing too is a, re, a release isn't going to solve necessarily like all your problems. Um, I've worked with many babies that have had the release and then we've had to do all this work to help them relearn how to use their tongue. So um, it's not it's not an easy like it's going to do solve everything. Sometimes there might be issues with breastfeeding. It's nothing to do with the lip or the tongue tie. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about mastitis, what it is and ways we can actually prevent it? Sure. So mastitis is when your milk is sat for too long in your breasts. So the milk doesn't get infected. It's just that the surrounding tissue, the tissue around the milk ducts is telling us that the milk has been there for too long and it goes and has like an inflammatory response. So the thing to do with mastitis is to check your boobs regularly. If you're really familiar with what your milk ducts feel like when they're full, when they're partially drained and when they're empty, you're going to know if there's any spot that's a bit lumpy or a bit sore and it means that you can make a conscious effort to help that milk move along and hopefully prevent you getting mastitis. The other thing to notice, mastitis doesn't always need curing with antibiotics. Um, A lot of mothers think it does and I guess the thing to remember with antibiotics is it destroys our healthy gut flora. It does that for our babies as well. It also really increases the chances of getting thrush and thrush for a postnatal mum that's breastfeeding is a nightmare. It's a real pain to cure. So if you don't need antibiotics, if you can learn your boobs and help clear blockages yourself, um, even if you get the early beginnings of mastitis, you can clear a lot of it with help. I'm not saying just good luck to you all. Um, but yeah, like seek help because you do not need the antibiotics. That's sort of the ideal is that you can 
clear it yourself. The breastfeeding organization or whatever the hotline is for breastfeeding, they give some incredible tips. Um, I had it once with Yumi and yeah, they, they gave some really good tips on helping to make sure we could, you know, I guess not have to go down the track of antibiotics and you used an electric toothbrush. Well, I did. I used, you? yeah, I used an electric toothbrush and it just got the tiny little, I guess the, the blockages out of my, some of my ducts. And then I was able to, in a hot shower, release some of the, the blockage and it came out and it was all good. Yay. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good one. So physios do ultrasound, um, therapy as well which is a similar yeah what's Um, that about I've heard of that similar concept to the electric toothbrush so it's sort of creating a vibration that breaks up the collection of milk because the milk when it's sat there like obviously milk is normal normally liquid consistency but when it's sat there for too long it goes to like toothpaste consistency so the way your electric toothbrush will have worked is it just literally broke up all of the milk sort of shattered it into smaller parts so that it could travel down your milk duct so, yeah, same thing with the physio or there's a, I um, have these amazing lactation massages in my shop um, that I don't say, not everyone needs these at all, but if you've got mastitis at least twice, I would say this is going to be a hugely beneficial tool for you to just always make an effort to clear your milk along, um, yeah, so that you don't keep getting Amazing, it. amazing. Is there a reason why some women seem to be seem to get it regularly and some women don't? get it not necessarily I mean it can be that if if yeah you know mothers are following more of a structure structure to their breastfeeding um sometimes we can put a reason to it and be like okay fantastic that's what that was about um and sometimes we just kind of go oh no like there was nothing else in it it's um it's just that maybe your milk ducts are a bit you know wiggly Mm. and so your milk gets a stuck in the corners and that's actually what it's to do with and it's nothing you're doing or not doing all this talk of stagnant milk has made me realize i forgot my breast pump oh dear i have to borrow yours my mouth sure your mouth yeah i'll help you (laughs) well apparently not your husband's because his tongue ties just not gonna drain my boobs (laughs) should mums be worried about breastfeeding if they've had breast augmentation or reduction not worried in the fact that it might not all work out because I think as I say to any mothers that have contacted me that have had implants they're like oh you know I got told that it's going to impact my breastfeeding in the same way that we all go into our our breastfeeding journeys not knowing how it's going to unfold um, I don't think there's anything too different for mothers that have had surgery like that on their breasts Um, no one can say it's going to be fine no one can say it's not going to be fine so it's just about assessing everything when you've had your baby um, and getting support so that you can learn how to drain your breasts effectively how to assess that you've got a good supply um yeah these are all the things that are important and I I just think too often mothers are told it's going to be a problem and then they go in thinking it's going to be a problem and they've got um, yeah exactly yeah and it's not I've worked with many mothers who've had implants and they've done absolutely wonderfully. They've had a great milk supply, so it's not always a problem. My sister-in-law, really quickly, she has breast implants and really was freaking out about the fact that because she didn't like touching her boobs that, you know, she wouldn't be good at breastfeeding. He's now eight months old or nine months old and she has absolutely nailed breastfeeding. She hasn't had a problem with latching. She's really enjoying it. They are ginormous at the moment because of the breast (laughs) implant and feeding yeah the only thing that she mentioned to me was that she doesn't actually feel let down 
Is yeah, that would yeah. that would that be a part of the um, implant or just her Not makeup? There's everyone's experience of the letdown reflex is different. Some mothers feel it. Some mothers actually find it quite painful. It's like pins and needles down their boobs. Um, and then there's other women who don't feel anything. So that's not necessarily to do with the surgery. That could just be that's her experience of the letdown right. reflex. Do you find women who have naturally large boobs or implants find engorgement less overwhelming? Mm. Not necessarily, no. 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 I think they still, yeah, have the same because we all have at a certain amount of of um, milk ducts that yeah. we make, and we bring in a certain amount of milk. So yeah, no, I wouldn't say that they don't have issues with engorgement. Yeah. I think um, I, I'm yeah. just asking because I have like a tiny titty. A ti- I'm yeah, I'm part of the tiny titty committee, and both times they've managed to get to like I don't know how, but like a double D situation under like basically yeah. can rest my chin on them, and I just like I remember especially with Poppy, my first, just being like, no one warned me of this. Like, this is the worst. But can I just yeah. say that while we're talking about it? There is always going to be a period in the first few weeks where breastfeeding for some mothers is incredibly challenging and it is actually really painful and it is really sore. It can be. It might not be, but it is. And I, with three children that I've had, persevering through it, doing if you have a breast pump or doing what you can do, what we're talking about, you can get past that painful first few weeks and you can have a really enjoyable breastfeeding journey with your child. So, yeah, it's just important Mm. to remember that, you know, just because it hurts at the start, it does not mean that's going to last forever. Absolutely. And the whole reason why I sort of give mothers that six-week goal is um, it's it's a real milestone. If you can make it to the six-week mark, you're going to get through all of that stuff. And it's not easy. The first six weeks for the majority of mothers is really hard. It'll be one of the hardest things you've ever done. Uh, And quite often mothers will say it's harder than birth because the birth is generally one day in your life. The breastfeeding takes ages. We're so sleep-deprived. We're recovering from the birth. We've got so much going on our hormones are all over the place it's a massive undertaking Mm. but if you can get through it it will all fall into place and it's just effortless and it's magic and it's such an amazing experience that will bring confidence to your whole mothering journey. Yeah, and I think also because when you're pregnant you do put so much mental energy into, you know, your birthday um, and how that's going to go and then I think all of a sudden afterwards you do, you suddenly realise, oh, my God, there's this thing that I'm going to be doing multiple times a day and I think because it's seen as a natural thing and it is a natural thing but that doesn't mean that it's easy and that doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to come naturally and so I think that we can also be hard on ourselves when it doesn't come naturally but I think that actually for the minority of people it is easy I mean you see more women than us but I very rarely see people who are like it was a complete breeze and I had no problems and it was easy as Yeah, no, for sure. I think it's important that we normalise that. Exactly what you said. I, you know, I think it's important that we, yeah, everyone knows that it's it's going to take time and a conscious effort and yeah, commitment and and all of that. But it, yeah, it can fall into place. Now, moving on to bottles, do you have tips for transitioning from breastfeeding to a bottle when returning to work, or just because you want to have a night out with your girlfriends? 
or you might be mixed feeding. So do tell. So I would always say to wait for the, to get through the six week, um, first six weeks before you introduce a bottle, just because the suck reflex on a bottle is very different to breastfeeding. And so not all babies, but a lot of babies, if they have a lot of bottles in the first six weeks, they can develop a preference for the bottle because it's much easier than breastfeeding. So um, ideally wait for the first six weeks and then definitely go ahead and introduce the bottle. I usually prefer, to focus on I it depends on the baby sometimes I'll get the partner to teach the bottle sometimes I'll actually find that a baby will do better if the mum teaches them um, because mums can breastfeed and then sort of pull a swifty and take their boob out and then pass the bottle sorry in. what what do they do <laughs> <laughs> so that can also help babies learn but it's just it's like with anything there's no like certain magical recipe that I have Um, all babies are different some of them take to a bottle some of them don't some of them do the bottle really well for a period and then yeah what's the deal then they just go no that's shit I don't ever want that again yeah Yeah, they're just no she's okay now she loves it but I remember breastfeeding and the first like when we started trying, she loved it. And then there was a break where I was just completely breastfeeding exclusively. And then when I went to have a night out, she was like, uh, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. You having fun without me? Absolutely. Yeah. Not. How dare. If you so say you are having a night out and you've pumped or you Wild or you are mixed out. feeding, how do you know how much to leave for the baby? It depends how old the baby is. So if it's in the first six months, we know that their stomach size is around a chicken egg size. So they'll drink about 60 to 100 mils each time they feed. What about the first six weeks or the six, six days? How much do you leave then? I'm joking. You don't go out there. Stay home, (laughs) breastfeed, learn how to do it. Continue. (laughs) Yeah. So that's kind of a guide as I would say, leave sort of 80 to 100 mils if your baby's in that range. Um, But every baby's different, so they're either going to drink and be happy with that amount or you might need to leave a little bit like another 20 mils if they're going to need a little bit more. But it's always about sort of starting smaller and then chopping them up as opposed to putting like 150 mils in the bottle and going, well, you're surely going to be good with that because babies are more likely to drink it Mm. um, because Ah. they can drink it short space of time and meanwhile they'll overstretch their tummy and they'll either bring it all back up or they'll give themselves major pains in their tummy that will last for a long time. You'll be out for dinner having a grand old time and your partner will be sending you a selfie of them just covered in spew. (laughs) A couple of things with the effects on breast milk. So how does alcohol affect your breast milk and is there a safe level that you can consume while breastfeeding? There's a fantastic app that is called Feed Safe and I just always recommend if mothers want to have a glass of wine and they want to breastfeed to use the app because um, what you do is, I'm pretty sure it's by the Australian Breastfeeding Association, you put in your like weight and your height and how much wine you've had, like if you just had one glass of wine and it will sort of start a clock and tell you when you can next breastfeed and that there's going to be sort of safe amounts in your in your milk um, but generally it's the same concept as um, when we drive a car the amount of alcohol that's in our blood so if you're if you can safely drive a car you can probably safely breastfeed if you're yeah not going to be in any position to drive you probably shouldn't be breastfeeding yeah. your baby yeah yeah Sophie did you just look at me strange then no <laughs> 
I, I would Good. look at me more than looking at you. Oh. COVID while co- isolation <laughs> while breastfeeding has not it's been. It's been a good time. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we'll move right along. Wait, I've, I've, had, I've never drank so much wine than I did in, oh. in ISO. <laughs> I've been ordering cases, not bottles, cases. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. I know. We needed something to look forward to. Oh, then, how good is it? And it's like it was It was like 4 o'clock, 3 o'clock. Oh, it's midday. Let's just go for it. Yeah, I feel like in a normal week you hang out for Friday. In COVID yeah. you hang out for 3.30. Yeah. Like, knock yeah. off. Yeah, I was 4 o'clock. I was 4 p.m. and I was like, I am having a glass of wine. Yeah. yeah I totally am. Nick and I tried to have a week off and we got through Monday with an alcohol-free day and so we That's celebrated huge. on Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Is breastfeeding a form of contraception? It can be, but there's quite strict guidelines. Um, it's called lactational amenorrhea, and it means that um, when you usually babies in the first six months are going to be more likely to be providing protection in that way. Um, so they're breastfeeding, you know, throughout the day and throughout the night. There's no other you know, nutrition. So they're not having solids or they're not having anything else, any bottles. It's just breastfeeding. Um, and in the event that that's happening, mothers are probably not ovulating and not able to get pregnant, but it's not a reliable form of contraception. So if you definitely don't want to have another baby so soon, you shouldn't be just thinking, oh, everything's great. Let's just, yeah, go for it. And we're fine. Cause you could get pregnant. Have you got that, Sophie? Yeah. yeah okay. Haha. We were joking before this that I'm scared that I'm pregnant, but anyway, that's fine. I don't think I am. She doesn't think. Amber said I'm not pregnant, so I'm not pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> and even if you are exclusively breastfeeding, but you've got your period back, that goes out the window, right? Because you're probably ovulating. Not necessarily. Oh. It depends when you get your first period. So usually, mothers who get their first period in the first six months they are less likely to be ovulating with their period. So their cycles mm. returned, not be releasing an egg. Um, and whereas mothers from six months onwards that get their period, statistically they're the ones that are mm. going to be fertile. What if you get your period once and then it stops for a few months? Could you be able to get pregnant? Jade, I'm not pregnant. Stop I'm it. I'm just <laughs> trying to find out. I think this is out of Amber's scope of... Is Sophie pregnant? Is Sophie pregnant? That's all we care about right now. I'm so sorry. I don't know. Okay, it's all right. I'll check later. She's not a pregnancy stick. I'm not going to weigh on her. You'll have to keep me posted about this. Oh, God. My gosh. No. I don't want Irish twins or near Irish twins. Thank you. Anyway, we've got, we look, this has been a marathon, but you're up to the second last question. So I want to congratulate you. Yeah. You're doing so well. Second baby. Does the milk often come in quicker and is the engorgement often not as bad? The milk comes in quicker, yes, um, for a mother who's breastfed before, but I find that the engorgement is often worse, but it settles more mm. quickly, mm. that makes sense. So when we have, um, when we get pregnant, that's when under the influence of pregnancy hormone, we make extra milk ducts. So a mother's milk supply with her first baby is going to be different to her second or third. Like every time we have another baby, we make more milk. 
And so that's a good thing to tell for the mothers that there's something called insufficient glandular tissue, which is when mothers um, are unable to make enough milk for their baby. Um, and it's a very small percentage of women in the world that this happens to, but it's really sad for mothers that really want to exclusively breastfeed and they won't be able to. But I, I always tell that story because if you've had that with your first baby, mm. you will have more milk second or third baby and you may be able to exclusively breastfeed yeah yeah but that sort of explains why engorgement is worse um with future babies um subsequent babies is that yeah we make a whole heap more milk we've got more milk available but our boobs just do better at sort of regulating the supply yeah i definitely found that with goldie my second the engorgement settled so quickly that i actually freaked out that I didn't have enough milk because they did feel so soft and I was like with Poppy I didn't get this relief for like weeks and weeks and and I was really worried that I didn't have enough milk but when we went to the child health appointment she said oh it's so often that with subsequent children worry that they don't have enough milk because they are so nice and soft (laughs) yeah now our last question to you is probably going to have the longest answer do you have tips on how to wean a baby (laughs) <laughs> I don't know that it will be my longest answer. I think it's I'm not I'm not that skilled at giving advice on that. It depends. She's how like breastfeed them forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it depends how old they are. Whether you can reason with them like can you obviously I recommend the World Health Organization guidelines so if you're trying to wane it too then you could explain it to them uh, there's a fantastic book called Nurses When the Sun Shines it's this um, book that's got a watercolor illustrations in it and it helps them it's it starts with night weaning so you would say that you can you can nurse when the sun shines but at night no more milk and so I would say to start there maybe night wean first um, and then you you can use it sort of as a stepping stone to, to continue sort of phasing out milk and starting new traditions like other things that you would probably need to do if it's a toddler to distract them and be like, well, we don't do milk now, we do this instead. Yeah, that's why I'm like it depends on the age yeah. of the baby. If, advice I would give, if you could do the book, if maybe you've already night weaned. Um, some mothers I've actually had that they've literally used grapefruit juice on their nipples to give their baby a <laughs> bit of a shock when it sour taste you know I'm saying baby like it might be more a toddler it depends on when the mother's wanting to do it but uh, yeah there's some of the sort of tricks I think the listeners are probably wanting you to say go on a girls weekend for 48 hours oh definitely um you must take that, us that is the only way you can wean you take Sophie and Jade and Amber yeah away on a 48 hour girls weekend yes by the time you're back they've forgotten about you <laughs> okay Thank you so much for talking to us. You've answered so many questions and given us so much information. This episode has been screamed for. Everyone has wanted it because I do think it is. It's a, it can be a really challenging part of motherhood, but it can also be so extremely beautiful. So it's something that a lot of people want to get right. So thank you so, so much. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we got there in the end after the back and forth, but it's been great. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.